My name is Bobby. I'm an alcoholic. Hi. And uh, I'd like to thank uh, Scott for inviting me, and I'd like to thank the entire committee for their hospitality here in Nebraska. It, it, it's a privilege. It's always a privilege to participate in that. You know, I think the committee made a mistake, though. Uh, you know, I, I've been accused of many things, uh, and usually spiritual is usually not on the list. <laughs> and you guys did have a minister, and I don't know how you messed up, but... Uh, <laughs> And I, I was talking to uh, Kim in the back, and if you're really hoping that I could say something to help you, uh, God bless you. I, I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was talking to Leon, you know, I was checking out your, uh, your archives, your history of your con conference, and, you know, I know I'm a guest, uh, but there's a mistake there. There is. I, I pointed it out to Reggie and Scott before I came up, and they said they would correct it, but there's a mistake back there. <laughs> Chapter 5 of the big book tells me what I'm supposed to do, and I will tell you in a general way what my life was like as an active alcoholic, what happened to me, and what my life is like today as a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous. But before I go any further, I need to let you know that my home group is the McKean Street Miracle Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we meet at Broad and McKean Street in South Philadelphia seven nights a week at 7 o'clock. So if you're ever in town, please stop by. I'm not there seven nights a week. You know, you get caught up in personalities. I go a lot of places, but I almost, I'm always there for our business meeting, and I'm always there Friday night. So please stop by, and we'll go out for cheesesteaks afterwards. <laughs> I, I was born and raised in a very blue-collar, very ethnic neighborhood. Uh, you know, I got seven brothers and sisters, and there was no booze at all in my house. My father did not drink, and my mother could not drink. My mother suffered from a history of mental illness and abuse prescription medication, so we had no booze at all in the house. My grandparents lived around the corner from us, and that's where all the family functions were held. They had a bar in the basement, and you know, that's where the parties, the christenings, and stuff like that happened. And that's where I had my very first drink. I was young, but I remember what that was. It was Ballantyne beer. And I remember that because Ballantyne used to sponsor the Phillies, and I remember going to Connie Mac City with my father and the old scoreboard in right center field. And I was very young. I didn't get drunk the first time I drank, but what had happened, I was going around the basement polishing off the half empties, or the half fulls, whatever. I was polishing them off, and my uncles were pointing at me, you know, and, and the attention that came with that. And you know what? I liked that. See, I never felt a part of, and that's pretty tough to do, like, because we had 11 people in a small three-bedroom row home. But I never felt a part of, and that would be a, my entire story, even in early to recovery. I always wanted to be a part of, and I never felt a part of anything. My drinking, I, I guess, kind of took off in high school. Uh, most of the kids in my neighborhood, you know, they went to the local school, but my parents, they had sent me to a private Jesuit high school. And, and I felt out of place there because most of the kids who went there were from affluent families from the suburbs. And as me and a couple other dirt balls in the neighborhood, we went there. And a lot of these kids, they was getting dropped off by their parents in their luxury automobiles. And it was their first introduction to the inner city. And me and the other kids, like, we used to walk to school. So right away, we had a reputation, you know. And it wasn't one that we deserved, but it's certainly one that I was capitalized on. And one of those nicknames I had was Crazy Coil. And I would do things in my gut that knew was wrong, that I was, I was raised, you know, with values and morals, and I knew what the deal was. But you know what? You guys came to expect me to do certain things, and I did things, even in my gut that I knew was wrong, but I did them anyway because my need to be accepted by you outweighed everything else. I'm at this school, I guess, for about two weeks, and it's football season, and there was a road trip, and, you know, we rented a bus, and there was booze, and there was fighting, and there was police, and it was just real insanity. And I remember that, you know, we were supposed to report to the disciplinarian on the phone. This happened like on a Saturday, and the Monday we had, a, you know, he lined us all up. And there's about 12 of us. And they were all upperclassmen, except me and a kid from my neighborhood. Like, we were the only freshmen there. And the disciplinarian came right up to us. He says, what's with you guys? You guys are here two weeks, and you get caught up in this jackpot already. I shrugged my shoulders. You know, Father, just one of them things. And that's why I was. I saw guys out like me. It did not take me long to size up the situation. 
I found out who was about the insanity and the drinking, and I, I did anything to fit right in the situation. When it came time to graduate from the prep, I really had no desire to further my education, and it kind of ticked my parents off because they made a lot of sacrifices to send me there. Well, and uh, back up a little bit, my sophomore year at the prep, the prep was in uh, North Philly, and a couple blocks away, there was a bar called the Ebony Showcase Lounge. I was a sophomore, and I was a regular at the Ebony. And I went there for a couple different reasons. Uh, they, you know, they had some dancers, and you know, they had some cold beer. But a lot of times, like the, these kids, they used to take the trolley car from 18th Street to Broad Street, which is only three blocks away, to get, get the subway. And because I had this nickname, Crazy Coil, I would have to show these guys how crazy I was by strolling out to Rod Avenue and sitting at the Ebony. And uh, as you can imagine by the name, like if you saw me at the Ebony, I was out of place. You know, I'm a little peach fuzz kid in a blazer and tie, and here's guys from the neighborhood, and I, I, and I wasn't from the neighborhood. But you know, that's what I did. And I can now tell you that I was, was never a tough guy, I never was. And every time I strolled out Durant Avenue and I sat in the Ebony, I was terrified. But I couldn't let anybody know. I didn't want to let you people down. And that was the type of guy I was. I put myself in situations I wasn't comfortable with, again, to be accepted. So the beer always helped with my courage, though. That, that helped out a lot. When it came time to graduate, like I said, I had no desire to further edge my, my education. And I really didn't have any other options. And I, I knew I couldn't stay home. There would be hell to catch. And I, I didn't have nothing else to do. And the only thing I was left was the service, and I, uh, I joined the service. And that really wasn't a bright move back then because it seemed nobody else was going. But I, you know, and I, you know, I, I did the easy way, like I joined the Air Force. And, uh, and uh, I was here, by the way. I know there's a lot of you Air Force guys. I, I was here, uh, you know, 20 some years ago. I don't remember much. I was on blackout. But <laughs> I like to say it's nice to be back, and it's how much the town has changed. Uh, I have no idea if it's changed or not. <laughs> But, but it's uh, so uh, so that, that's about my Nebraska experience. But uh, so I went overseas, and you know I had a lot of guys from my neighborhood. I'd gone over and got whacked on certain things. I didn't mess around with other substances. I had a fear of that. But drinking was definitely part of the game. I was there uh, a few months, and, and several friends of mine were killed, and I didn't know how to handle that. You know, like we grew up. You know, we didn't tell anybody nothing. You know, in the family. You know. No one has said anything the way they felt, and, and once you moved out of the house, you were no longer privy to the secrets of the family. Everything stayed inside, and everything stayed within the walls of the house. So, uh, you know, this experience happened. I didn't know how to, you know, tell people what was going on, but I, I knew booze numbed the pain, and that's what I did. I did a lot of drinking, and I had a pretty neat job in the service, and uh, it took me to a lot of places. And, uh, but, you know, I really didn't distinguish myself, but I didn't do badly either. I gave the bare minimum effort required to get by, and I was satisfied with that. I remember when my uh, my tour was up. I came back home. Uh, I I enrolled in St. Joe's College, uh, you know, uh, and uh, I'm there for a couple weeks. And then I'm in school, and I wind up taking several civil service examinations for the city of Philadelphia. And then one day, guys from my neighborhood they called me up, and uh, you know, the Phillies they were playing one of them businessman specials, you know, one of them weekday games. And uh, we decided, you know, they you know they said the games at 12:30. You want to go? And I said okay. So I cut class and I went down to the game. And there's about five of us, and we're sitting up on the 700 level, the top of the stadium, and the sun's beating down on us, and we're drinking that cheap watered-down beer, and that sun's beating down on me, and I'm getting trashed. And I told the guys I was with, I said, you know what, I said, I'm going to run down on the field and meet one of the players. And they said, that's okay, and they kind of shrugged me off, because another nickname I had was Bullshit Bob. I would say, like, <laughs> I'm, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. I didn't do nothing, I drank, that's all I did. So... I had worked my way, and uh, this was in, like in the 70s. The Phillies had since moved. They're playing at Vet Stadium. So I'd worked my way down to the old picnic area. I jumped over the fence, and I ran out in right field. 
the San Diego Padres were in town, and Dave Winfield was playing right field for the Padres. And I went out and I shook his hand. I said, hi, Dave, how you doing? And he looked at me. He said, brother, he said, what are you doing out here? And from behind him, I saw the guards come, and I said, Dave, i got to go now. So <laughs> I, I started running towards the infield, and I went to slide into second base. And as I was going towards second base, I saw more guards coming from the third base side, and I know if I slid into the base, I'd get caught. So I stopped, and I turned around and started going towards first base. And I don't know, I'm about 10 feet away from the guards there, and I stopped running at this point, like I'm going to walk and give myself up. And the last second, I deked the guy, and I ran out in the outfield. Now I'm running around like a lunatic. It seems like about 10 minutes, but it's probably closer to 3 or 4. And they put up on the scoreboard, Mr. Excitement. I finally gave up. I, I, I was out of breath. I was, I, just, I was drunk and out of breath, running around. And I finally gave up, waiting for them to catch me. And they came up, and they, was, they caught me in right field, and they was taking me up to the bullpen, and Tug McGraw gave me the thumbs up. I got a standing ovation from 37,000 people. Was, <laughs> and it, it, was a, it was an incredible experience. Now, I knew I was going to get it beaten by from the guards, but that was okay. Because that standing over it was, was worse, worth any beating I was going to get at that matter. And as I was, they was taking me off the field, I knew it was coming. Just then a Philadelphia police lieutenant came up to me. He said, what's the matter with you? He said, are you drunk? Are you high? I said, no, I'm just happy. I'm just happy to be here. He said, well, you better get your happy ass out of the stadium. So, <laughs> so not only did he save me from a beating, but most importantly, he had saved me from getting arrested. Because that was important. Because a couple of weeks later, one of them civil service tests, I got hired by the city. And if I got locked up, I couldn't have done the job that I was given. And uh, I spent most of my time in North Philly. It was a pretty rough area. And I, would so, uh, I worked in uniform up there for almost 10 years. And I saw the ravages of alcoholism and drug addiction day in, day out. And at the end of my tour, I would go to the bar and I would drink uh, with, the, with these older guys. And uh, I would want to tell them some of the things on the job that bothered me. But I didn't want to be thought less than, you know. And it was a pretty macho job. And uh, we had a mayor at the time who was a former cop, and there was 8,500 of us, and we just had a run of the city. We did whatever the hell we wanted to do. And uh, I didn't want to tell my, my coworkers the way I really felt about certain things because I wanted to be thought less than. So I went along with the program, again, doing things in my gut that I knew was wrong, but I did it anyway. The need to be accepted and part of. And uh, the writing was on the wall, you know. Uh, I had a supervisor on the job who pulled me off the side. He said, you know what, kid? He said, you're smart and you're going to go places, but that booze is going to mess you up. And that went in one ear and out the other. I had an uncle who was on my job, and, uh, and he had pulled me off to the side. He said, Bobby, I'm hearing a lot of these stories about you. He said, you better chill out. You better watch yourself. One ear and out the other. I'm sober a couple years, and I run into these two guys at different meetings, you know. And I realized at that point they were trying to 12-step me. But I didn't know that back then. You know, and I turned to my uncle and said, you know, Jimmy, I said, how come you didn't tell me? He said, I told you, it just went in one ear and out the other. <laughs> you know, I was 24 years old. I shot and killed a 15-year-old kid in the line of work. And it was, a, it was just a terrible situation that couldn't be avoided. And there was a lot of help extended to me, but I rebuffed everyone, you know. I crawled in a bottle, and that's what I did for the next three years. I wound up getting sober when I was 27. And, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of people offered help, and, and I just turned everyone away. I, I just wild in self-pity, you know. Alcohol took me to a lot of my nevers, and one of those nevers is the use of other substances. I said I would never mess around with that stuff. And one night I was drinking, my judgment was impaired, I got involved in other substances. Uh, my drug use is very short. It only lasted 17 months, but it, 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 it just was ugly, and it helped me get in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous a lot quicker. And I think due to the fifth tradition, that's all I need to say about that stuff. It was just a terrible experience, you know. I, I was a nasty human being, 
and uh, my co-workers covered up for me and my personal life was a shambles, you know. I was, a little, I was living with someone at the time and she told me, she said, Bobby, you're a decent guy, but when you drink, you become an animal. You need to stop, you know. And I would try to stop, and I stopped lots of times. I would stop because I was, I was abusing my sick time at work, you know. I would stop because I didn't want her to leave, leave me. I would stop because, you know, I had some financial difficulties, you know. Uh, I, I, lots of reasons. I would stop for Lent, and uh, I would pick up again. I could never stay stopped. That was a problem. I can go a couple of days, maybe a week or so, but I would wind up drinking again. I knew about Alcoholics Anonymous at a young age. I made my very first meeting in 1979. And I don't tell people I went out because I, I never came in. But I'll tell you what had happened. I showed up for work one day, and one of my coworkers was drunk. And the supervisor, we had an EAP unit, and part of that unit had an AA meeting there. And the supervisor told me, he said, drive this guy up to the unit. I says, okay. I remember I'm coming, driving down to the, coming down the driveway of, our, of this unit, and there's this guy sitting on the porch. His name Eddie, Eddie M. And he's sitting on the porch. And I says, Eddie, I'm dropping this guy off. I says, at 4 o'clock, I'll be back to pick him up. He looked me dead in the eye. He said, hey, kid, do you want to come in? I said, no. I was insulted that he even asked me. I knew, I knew what AA was. AA was for you older guys, you married guys, you guys with the three heads. I, I was a beer drinker. I wasn't an alcoholic. An alcoholic was those poor people I was dealing with day in, day, in, day out. It wasn't me. The only time I drank hard liquor was like on St. Patty's Day or like New Year's Day or like payday. But I was a beer drinker. <laughs> And there was no way you could be an alcoholic drinking beer. I got sober a few years later, and Eddie was one of the first guys I saw, and he smiled when I came in. He said, so, kid, you finally came in. It was just goes to show you every drink was necessary and all the nonsense that went with it. I was sitting in a bar one day. It was Memorial Day, and guys in, uh, you know, back up a little bit. Uh, right before this, a week before this, I was sitting home uh, from work, I, I, and uh, there was an, I took off from work. I was probably hungover and made some sort of story up. And I'm reading an ad in the, in the newspaper, and it said, alcohol problems, drug problems, depression, sorts of suicide, marital problems. I was four out of five. Yeah. I was single. And I'm sure if I was married, I'd been batting a thousand. But I took a look at the ad, it says, maybe, you know, they talk about the moment of clarity or sanity. As soon as it came, it quickly left. But something made me cut that ad out. So I cut it out, and I stuck it in my wallet. The following weekend, it was Memorial Day weekend. I'm sitting in the bar. I'm drinking. Guys in my squad were having a party. And... Uh, one of the guys that I worked with, he says, I'm going to drive home now. He said, I had enough. And this was before the phrase designated driver. I said, well, I'll tell you what. I said, I'll drive you home because I, I haven't been drinking as much as you. He says, okay. So I get in my car and I'm driving up the street. And uh, there was a kid riding towards me on a bicycle. I spotted him down the road. And I decided I was going to show off my driving capabilities to my partner. And I was going to play chicken with this kid. And unfortunately, at the last second, we turned in the same direction. I ran this kid over. As he lay bleeding on the hood of my car, I got out of my car on my nightstick and was going to beat this kid. My partner prevented me from doing that. I pulled this kid off the hood of my car, threw him off the side of the street like a piece of trash. I pulled this crumpled bicycle from underneath my car and threw that off the side of the street like a piece of trash. I drove back to the bar. I made a remark. I scored 10 points. When I came through, came to the next day, I realized I was in serious, serious trouble. But I didn't think anybody would help me because I was such a creep. I used and abused everybody I came in contact with. If I hung around you, you had something I wanted, you know. And I didn't think anybody would help me. So, uh, you know, the only thing I knew was to do, I, I got a case of beer, a bottle of liquor, and some other substances, and I checked in a hotel with the intentions of consuming all the stuff to build up the courage in my life. And three days later, they're knocking on the hotel door to kick me out. 
you know. And I was suspended from my job at this point. I no longer had access to my weapons. I couldn't shoot myself. So I walked over to the window, and I opened up the window. I was going to jump out. And I opened up the window, and I was on the fifth floor, and I remembered I was scared of heights, and I didn't want to jump. So I went in the bathroom, and I filled the bathtub up with water, and I had a blow dryer, and I was going to pull the blow dryer into the tub to make it appear an accidental execution. And every time I would pull the blow dryer, it would come unplugged. I was about a foot and a half, short on cord. And I got one foot in the tub, and I'm leaning, and I'm trying to plug it in. And it seemed like a scene out of a Woody Allen movie, like I couldn't even kill myself. But, and I laugh now, but you know what? I never want to forget the pain I was in that day. And the only other tool that I had left was my car. So I took one last spin to my neighborhood. I started up the Falls Bridge and I come down the East River Drive in Philadelphia. And I decided I was going to end my life in an automobile accident. As I'm coming down the East, the East is a very winding road along the Schuylkill River. And I realized I didn't want to go to oncoming traffic because I didn't want to hurt anybody innocently. You know, I hurt everyone. And, and I didn't want to hurt anybody else. But I, you know, I didn't want to go on living. I, I didn't want to go on with this pain. And I didn't know what the solution was. And I decided I would wrap myself around a tree, and I would end it that way. And I finally, you know, and I'm surprised, you know, I start crying. I just lost it. And I'm surprised I didn't go in an accident by accident because I had no control, you know. And I now know it was my higher power looking out after me. I pulled over at the, at the end of the drive, and in the, there was Boathouse Row. And I pulled over behind the wheel of my car, and I cried like a baby for about 10 minutes. And I reached into my wallet, and there was that ad that I clicked out of the nose several weeks before. And it's no longer there, but at the end of the boathouse, there was one of those glass-enclosed phone booths. And I went over to the, the phone, and I dialed the number up on the paper. And the woman who answered the phone, I spoke to that woman like I spoke to no one in my life before. I told her the truth. I told her about everything. I just Once I started, I couldn't stop. It just came out, and I told her. And she says, I, I suggest you drive over to Hahnemann Hospital. And, you know, they'll be waiting for you. So I drove over to Hahnemann. It was about a five-minute ride, and that day before me. And they admitted me to their 10th floor, their psychiatric unit. And I spent about four days there. And from there, I got transferred to the VA hospital out in West Philadelphia. And I spent about six weeks in their flight deck. And from there, I got transferred to the VA hospital out in Coatesville. And I spent a couple weeks in their flight deck before they put me to an alcohol and drug board. When I pulled over to ask for help that day, that phone number, Alcoholics Anonymous, was the furthest thing from my mind. I did not think I had a problem with booze. I thought it was my short use of all the substances. Maybe I had stress. You know, I had that from the service. I had that from my job. You know, maybe I was mentally ill and I had heard that from my mother, you know. Or well, it was all these other stuff, you know. It certainly wasn't alcohol. I, I was a beer drinker. I remember I finally got into the alcohol and drug ward, the VA hospital, and I'm sitting in the day room, and they got the 12 steps and the 12 traditions up on the wall. I go up to the steps. I get about six of them done. I'm zipping through them. I saw the amends. I said, no, nah, that doesn't apply to me. They're screwed, you know. And what had happened later that night, some guys came up and they carried the message. And I would later find out that was the institution committee on a commitment. And at the moment that the speaker said something about his background that I didn't like, couldn't relate to, just did not identify with, I would immediately tune him out. See, I was too busy listening to the messenger and not the message. But what bothered me the most was at the end of the meeting, everyone held hands and said the Lord's Prayer. If this is what you people were about, then I don't want nothing to do. I talk about my mom uh, with her mental illness. My mom was a fundamentalist, and you know there were pictures and candles and radio programs, all this stuff all over the house. I was 15 years old. I came home from school one day, and I was in the house for about 10 minutes. And uh, before I came across my mom, and uh, she had slit her wrist. And I remember when I found her, she looked up at me and she said, "Bobby, help me." And I looked down at her, and I said, "Good for you." And I walked out of the house. And I got an older guy to get me a quart of wine, and I stayed out of the house and I drank the wine. And I, I stayed out for several hours, and I timed it because I knew. That 
And I came home later that night, and my father had found her. By that time, it was too late, and I came in the house, and my father told me what happened. And I acted surprised. I said, oh, how about that? That happened when I was 15. I got sober when I was 27. I had a resentment towards God that I was never going to deal with, and that was 12 years. And you people held hands and said the Lord's Prayer. I broke away from the group, and there was no way. I remember when it was time to get out of the VA hospital, uh, I had a nurse come up to me, and she said, the only way you're going to stay, the only way you're going to get well, you need to go to AA meetings. And I went to AA meetings every single day. I don't drink coffee, so I don't make it. I don't smoke cigarettes. I don't empty ashtrays. I was getting there late. I was leaving early. I got there for a big book meeting or a step meeting. I would leave at halftime. I had something better to do. God forbid a tradition meeting. I said, what the hell is that? I ain't got to do it. That don't apply to me. I was interested in war stories. And at the moment that the speaker said something about his background that I couldn't relate, just didn't like or couldn't identify with, I would immediately tune him out. And I would never stand in circle and say the prayer. But I couldn't tell people what was going on. But I made meetings. <laughs> made meetings every day, and I was crazy as a bed bug. I was sober, uh, you know, uh, about eight, nine months, and I'm sitting in this bar because they sell real good roast beef, right? And, and, and I'm drinking seltzer in, in a glass like this. I'm drinking seltzer. And, you know, and the, you know I, I could have given me any number of reasons why I was there then. But the truth is, you know, I, I was one to show off to the guys in my neighborhood, you know, because, you know, I was always a big shot. And, uh, you know, my downfall uh, caused a lot of negative publicity. So I wanted to go back in the neighborhood and show everyone that I was okay. That's why I was there. So I'm drinking seltzer. Guys in the neighborhood came in, and, you know, things got kind of ugly, and one thing led to another. And I stood up, and I had this rock glass, and I punched this guy in the face with a mug, and I cut him severely. I mean, he was bleeding like a pig. And the police came, and the guys who handled the job, they knew me, and they cut me a break, and they let me go. And that's where I learned my lessons about people, places, and things. And I haven't been in a place since, like, since then, you know. I've since found a place that sells roast beef without being in that type of environment. It's just nuts. I was sober, uh, you know, sober a year. And I celebrated my anniversary, and I told my And when I got done, it was amazing. A thunderous applause, like the lame threw their crutches away, the blind could see. It was nuts. And people, and people came up to me, and they patted him on the back, saying, man, Bobby, way to go. You're doing so good. I lied during my entire story. Lied. Everything was a lie. Uh, I identified myself as an alcoholic. That was a lie. Well, in my head, it was a lie. Uh, See, because my group, they didn't want to hear none of that other nonsense, and I thought that was my problem. I thought maybe it was use of other substances, maybe I was mentally ill, maybe I had this stress issue. You know, it certainly wasn't booze. I was a beer drinker. In fact, during the course of my story, a bottle of beer appeared in my head, but you guys don't want to hear that. So I gave you all the quotes and everything else, and it just cured you all, and it was amazing. I was sober a little, a little after that, about 14 months, and all the men on the group went on a retreat, and they kind of pulled me in, you know, and I really didn't want to go. But I want, to, I want to be accepted by these guys. This is a true story, I swear to God. I used to, in early recovery, like the first couple of years, I used to go to go-go bars on a regular basis and used to get my picture taken, the dancers, and I would come to the meetings, I would pass these pictures around to the old-timers because I want to be liked by these guys so much. And they would look at the picture and they would look at me and they would shake their head and say, keep coming back. <laughs> and that used to get me so mad. I thought they were like patronizing me and I just kept coming back to spite them. I was nuts. So they all went on this retreat, and they said, we're going on this retreat. Do you want to go? And I wanted to, but I couldn't tell them about this situation. With you know, They knew that I wasn't praying, and, but I, I couldn't tell them about my mom. And uh, I said, okay, I, I'll go. And I was very uncomfortable on, on my way to this retreat, extremely uncomfortable. I'm there about 15 minutes when I run into the retreat master. As soon as he saw me, his eyes lit up. 
He's my disciplinarian from high school. Also happened to be a longtime member of Yay Yang. And he just smiled when he saw me. He said, man, he said, he said, so that was your problem, huh? And he started talking to me. He said, listen, he said, you got, your spon- you got yourself a sponsor? I says, no, because I'm a really bright guy. I don't need a sponsor. He said, I strongly suggest you get a sponsor. So I asked my roommate to be my sponsor. And the only time I talked to him is when I accidentally bumped to him in the meetings. He would say, Bobby, I still got that same phone number. I said, yeah, yeah, I'll give you a call. I never called him. You know, in fact, you know what I used to do? I used to talk bad about this guy. I used to make stuff up about him. I said, you can't believe what he's doing. He never done nothing. He put the hand of help out there. I'm the one who slapped it. Character assassinate the guy. He didn't do a perfect gentleman. He never did anything at all. I was nuts. I was sober 23 months. I beat another man with a baseball bat. You know, I forget what step I was working that day. I was, <laughs> I was crazy. I was, I was crazy as a bed bug. You know, and... Uh, I, I got out of that mess, you know. Thank God he was married. I mean, you know, it was a really torty situation, but, you know, he was married. I got to get out of that. It was nuts. I was sober two years. I didn't celebrate my second anniversary, you know. A month after my second anniversary, I went to eat my gun. The same pathetic feeling I had 20, uh, 25 months before, but 25 months before, I was loaded with drugs or alcohol. Here I am, stone cold sober, making regular tens of meetings in rooms with Alcoholics Anonymous, and I was dying from untreated alcoholism. I was a liar, thief, and a cheat. I 13-step people. I did everything wrong in Alcoholics Anonymous except I didn't pick up a drink. And I would share these crazy stories from the floor and people would pat me on the back and they say, that's okay, just don't drink. And I took that as, well, I can do whatever I want and just don't drink. And I now know that's not the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. The message is not just don't drink. That's not the message. It was crazy, you know. But unfortunately, my group, you know, I mean, the literature wasn't that big. You know, sponsorship, you know, and this is amazing. I mean, we're the fourth oldest group in the country. We have 1,600 meetings a week, and it, there was just certain things that really weren't big in our area. And there were real good men there, and I'm not bashing them, but that's just the way they were raised. I mean, if you're sponsored by men who are, like, aren't big in the literature and recovery, I mean, how can you give away what you don't have? And our big thing was just go to meetings and just don't drink. And being a bright guy that I was, I said, well, you know what? If I could just not drink, why do I need to go to a meeting? You know? Meeting makers make it. Well, I know people made meetings who got loaded, you know? Just don't drink no matter what. Well, you know what? I drink no matter what. I drink when I got a pocket full of money. When I got no money, I steal yours, I drink. I drank when I was working and when I was suspended, I drank. Fourth of July, you know, Labor Day, October 3rd, it didn't matter. Four o'clock in the afternoon, two o'clock in the morning, Saturdays, Tuesdays. I drank no matter what. I drank when I had a girlfriend, she left me, I drank. You know? I drank all the time. I tried to stop drinking lots of times. I could never stop drinking. Stay stop drinking. Just don't drink no matter what. That implies willpower, and that's a direct contradiction to the first step. You know, I was sober 25 months. I went to eat my gun. And you know what? I knew the program was working because people behind me were getting better. And, man, I hated them the most. I hated everybody, but I hated them the most. I said, how dare they get theirs before mine because I'm calling up on this seniority bit, you know? In my home group, like, we had your name, your first name, last initial, the, you know, your anniversary date that month and how many years. And you know what? I got two years. If you got three years and you went out, I said, thank God, I move up on the seniority list. I swear to God, I, I, I'm not proud of that, but that's the way it was. If you went out and you had more time than me, I, 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 I relished that. I said, that's great. It was nuts. I swear to God, I had no idea who John Barleycorn was. I was wondering, I was wondering why everybody was blowing this guy's anonymity. I said, you know what? He must be really a tough SOB. I want to tangle with this guy. When I found out who John Porticone was, I, I felt so stupid, you know? I mean, here I was, I was so damn bright, I damn near killed myself. That's crazy. 
No one asked me to be their sponsor. No one wanted to, what the hell I had. I, I didn't carry the message. I carried the disease. That was crazy. I would share these witty stories from the table and go to the men's room and get a cup of tea or whatever, come back, and the seat next to me would be empty. You'd be sitting on the other side of the room. Then I'd be glaring at you, trying to stare you down. I was nuts. Crazy. Dying from untreated alcoholism in the rooms of AA every single day. There was this guy from my neighborhood. He was in and out of jail in the 60s and the early, and 70s. And I saw him, and he was sober for a number of years, and I could tell that he was for real because he had the glow. You know, I, I, I was faking it. You know, I, I you know, was giving you the lingo and everything else, but this guy had the glow, and I knew you couldn't fake that. And one day I'm at a meeting, and I pulled him off to the side. His name was Bob. I said, I said Bobby, I, I said, I, I'm really hurting. I said, I need some help. I said, would you be my sponsor? He looked me dead in the eye and said, Bobby, I've been watching you for a couple years, and all of a sudden I'm feeling good about myself. And uh, he looks at me, he says, you know what? He said, you're full of shit. And I couldn't believe he said that. I'm looking at him. And he says, I'm going to be your sponsor under certain conditions. You're going to call me every single day. You're going to go to a big book meeting a week. You're going to go to a step meeting a week. You're going to go to a men's meeting. You're going to get yourself a coffee commitment. And you're going to leave them damn women alone. And I'm looking at him and I'm saying to myself, like, who's he talking to here? <laughs> I got 25 months. I'm selling the grapevines. I mean, what's going on here? You know? And he's telling me what I got to do. And that's what I'm saying to myself. But I looked him dead in the eye. I nodded. Okay. Uh, that's okay. I, I'm willing to do that. And, and that's the day that I took the first three steps. I mean, I knew I was powerless. And no question about that. But I went to eat my gun. Safe to assume my life was unmanageable. You know? It didn't take a rocket scientist to figure that out. And if I was powerless, that's the problem. The solution had to be a power greater myself. I mean, I didn't need to write on this for 30 days. It kind of just fell into place. And I made a decision, and, but my sponsor told me there was a difference between making a decision and making a commitment. And I got on my knees with them that night, and we said the third step prayer together. You know? And I was one of them clever guys who just go to meetings and say, I, took my, I turned my will over, I took it back, I turned it over, I took it back. I never turned nothing over. You know? I didn't know that. I was just trying to sound clever in a meeting. You know? He said, Bobby, he says, admitting you're alcoholic and making regular tens of meetings is a far cry from permanent contented sobriety. I said, well, he's smart. Until I found that in the 12 and 12 and the third step. I said, damn, he just read it right out of the book. <laughs> but you know what? And, and, but that was a great thing about him. He, he introduced me to the steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I didn't know nothing about, you know? And, uh, but he was one of those guys that I admired, but also one that scared the hell out of me. See, I never had the courage to do the right thing. And people doing the right thing intimidated me. And I couldn't tell people that. And I so desperately wanted to be a part of, but you know what? I was so terrified. I didn't want to do what they did. I didn't know how to do it, you know? Big ego, pride, and all that other stuff. And uh, he introduced me to the big book. I, I got involved in the steps, and you know what? I started to get better. Things around me didn't always get better, but I, got, I started getting better. And I did my inventory, and I didn't want to do one of these. I said, Christ, I go to meetings, and people go, oh, easy does it. You don't want to get well too soon. <laughs> Ain't that the craziest remark you ever heard? I mean, I'm going to talk later. I'm a cancer survivor, but, you know, I mean, can you imagine if you had to get yourself a cold? You don't want to get well too soon. Now, nah, let me let this cold develop into bronchitis. Get bronchitis. Now, nah, nah, I think I'd rather have pneumonia. Let me get pneumonia before I go. You know, you don't want to get well too soon. I mean, any other disease, we want to get quick. But in recovery, you don't want to get well too soon. And I later found out the reason they couldn't tell me about the steps is because they didn't have an experience about the steps, you know? So and this guy had the experience. It wasn't about quoting the literature. It wasn't about memorizing it. It was about incorporating as a way of living and sharing his experience with me. And that's what he did. And I did my inventory. And you know what? It wasn't the big boogeyman that I thought it was. Everything I wrote down, I did. There are no secrets jumped out at me, you know. 
Then I did my fifth step with him, but not at first. I, I, I didn't want to do it. I got done. And I said, Bobby, I'm going to go on retreat this weekend. I'm going to do my fifth step with a priest. He said, okay, Bobby, when you get done, you come back, you do it with me. <laughs> and, and, and I'm saying to myself, I was like, what are you, deaf? You didn't hear what I just said. And, uh, but I didn't say that. I said, Bobby, I said, I'm going to go on a retreat. He said, Bobby, I understand. I heard you the first time. He said, but my job is to walk you through these steps. And if I'm supposed to help you change your character defects, I think I need to know what they are. I said, oh, okay. And the truth is, it, well, I didn't do, go to this priest to be spiritually enlightened because I still got this resentment. Even though I wrote it down, I still had it. You know, there was a lot more than just writing it down. And it, I just thought that this guy was bound, you know, he wasn't, he wasn't going to break my confidence. That's all. I thought that, and there were a lot of things I wasn't proud of, I was ashamed of. And, uh, but I didn't go to the priest. I did it with my sponsor, and I did my fifth step with him. And you know what? He didn't laugh at me. He didn't pass judgment. He didn't ridicule me. In fact, what he did, he shared some of his experiences with me, which took away the terminal uniqueness that I thought that I had, that I thought I was the only slimy guy in the world that did certain behaviors. And I'll be forever in debt for and I didn't burn my fifth step, you know, uh, because, you know, I put a lot of work in, into my fourth step. And I knew there was lots of other things I needed to do, and this is what I needed to do. You know, you know six and seven character defects. I, I didn't know what the hell they were, you know. I, I knew I was a character when I drank. But to be honest, before doing my inventory, I found out that I had no character whatsoever. I was a liar, a thief, and a cheat. I was irresponsible. Many other things, you know. And uh, the sixth step was a willing step. And I had some experience in that going back on the third step. You know, and that's all it was. It was just a willing step. And the seventh step was a prayer. But it was a lot more than that prayer. I mean, I got a laundry list of character defects, and my sponsor at that time, he told me, he said, Bobby, you need to put legs, you know, and I can pray all day long. God, help me be patient, help me be patient. But if I'm put in a position where I choose to lash out at somebody, that prayer goes right out the window, you know. And because I didn't burn my fourth step, when I got to my eighth step, most of my, my list was done, and I had to put more names on it, you know. And, you know, I was one of those guys I never harmed anybody but myself. Right then should have been the tip-off that I've never done an accurate inventory. I harmed everybody I came in contact with, you know. So uh, the eighth step, I made a list, and I again became willing. And if I didn't have the willingness, I could fall back on step six, where I practiced some willingness before. You know, I just needed to ask for the willingness. And the ninth step said direct amends, you know. No phone calls, no letters, because you know what? I didn't beat you with a bat through the mail or over the phone, you know. And if I want to take those measures, you know, I can give you any number of reasons, but the truth is I'm, I'm afraid to face you, and if I got that fear, then that's something I should have already addressed by then, you know. And I'd like to share two experiences on the ninth step, you know. Uh, I was at a meeting one time, and there was a guy on my, uh, that I saw at this meeting who I have not seen since 1978. He was not on my fear list or any, uh, he wasn't on my amends list, not for any fears or anything. I just plain forgot, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So I saw this guy... And uh, I recognized him right away. And what I used to do, I was in a bar, and one day, like, we had words, and one thing led to another, and he, you know, he didn't respond. And so whenever I wanted to impress people, I would pick on this guy, publicly humiliate this guy, to make myself look like a tough guy. And again, like I said, I'm not a tough guy, I never was. And I would verbally abuse him, I'd slap him, and one day I even spit on him. I mean, what worse thing can you do than a human being spit on? And this guy didn't do anything. And I recognized him immediately. And he's sitting in the meeting, I guess, obviously, by his reaction, he didn't recognize me. So, I, you know, I stood up and I told my story and I introduced myself. And I need to let you know why I do that. I believe I have an understanding of the audition. A lot of people, all of a sudden, you know, it's like we joined the witness prison program. You know? <laughs> it's like the mob and we got all these nicknames. And there's, there's Bucktooth Jerry and Red Sweater Mary and Pepsi George and Frank the Fox. I mean, it's just crazy.
This is the end of side one. To continue listening, turn the tape over now. The 11th tradition is real clear. I'm not on the television, I'm not on the radio, and my picture's not in the newspaper, and, I, and my name doesn't appear, Bobby Coyle, member of Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the 11th tradition. Dr. Bob... <laughs> Dr. Bob said, when one drunk is anonymous from another drunk, that is a violation of the 11th tradition. Now, can you imagine at 2 o'clock in the morning and you want to drink and you're calling the operator? Yeah, operator, can I buck two Jerry's phone number? Or God forbid you want to go visit one of these old-timers in the hospital and say, yeah, I'm here to visit Frank the Fox. I mean, if they've got a psych ward, they're going to admit you. It's not a secret society. And Dr. Bob went on to say, he says, anonymity is spiritually inspired, secrecy is feared inspired. You know what? And in Alcoholics Anonymous, I give my full name. But under no conditions do I have the right to break anybody else's anonymity. That's just a personal decision I make, and I'll respect your decision. So I say, my name is Bobby Coyle, I'm an alcoholic, and I'm looking this guy dead in the eye. And when he heard my name, then he nodded in recognition. And when I got done sharing, uh, I, I turned to him, and his name was Bob. And I, I, I told the group what I did to Bob. And I said, you know what, I figured if I publicly humiliated him, the least I could do was to apologize to him publicly. And this wasn't a grandstand, I just, just something overcame me. you know. And, and I did it, I, I made the amends to him. And I also told, see, making amends is a lot more than saying I'm sorry. For me, there are two words that don't mean squat. It's about righting the wrong. And if I robbed you, it's real easy for me to go in my pocket and pay you back. But what about the emotional damage or the psychological damage we cause on people? How do I make amends for that? Besides an explanation, the best amends is not to exhibit that behavior again. But I need to acknowledge that where I was wrong. So I told Bob, I said, you know, Bob, God forbid, I said, I hope I never do that again. As long as I don't drink and, and you know, if I practice this way of life, I, I, I won't, you know. And he came up and he hugged me, you know, and it was a credible experience. And we started talking. And you know what? I asked Bob because uh, this was this was about five, six years ago, right? This is like 93, 94, and I haven't seen him since 78, so, you know, 16 years. I said, Bob, what's going on? He said, I'm sober three years. And I never saw this guy, and I'm very active in my area, and I, I never saw this guy before. We have 1,600 meetings a week in Philadelphia. And we had both moved out of the neighborhood. I'm now living in South Philly. He's living up in uh, Northeast Philly. And uh, he says, you know what, Bobby? He says, I'm flipping through the meeting list, and I was looking for a different meeting to attend, and for some reason, this meeting jumped out at me. 1,600 meetings a week. I'm at a meeting that I've never been to. He's never been in a meeting that he's never been to. I believe that God put that guy in my path that particular night. You know, I once heard that coincidence is God's way of remaining anonymous. Now, I had an option here. I could either make amends or I could choose not to acknowledge him. I made the amends, he forgave me, and it was a credible experience. And for those who have done nice step work, you know what I'm talking about. It's almost like a high. It gives you the motivation to do a lot more. On the flip side of that, I was at uh, my home group at one time was the Stepping Stones group, and I was the intergroup rep, and I was at a meeting one day, and I made a motion at the business meeting, obviously for the betterment of AA. And uh, the other people in the group didn't see it that way, especially my friend Freddie. Like, Freddie, uh, like, like, shot me down. And in my head, like, he publicly embarrassed me in front of the group. And I couldn't believe he did that, because we grew up in a neighborhood, right, wrong, or different. You always backed your boys. And uh, I couldn't believe he did this to me. And uh, I took it personally. And I would come to the group. I, I would never talk to Freddie again. You know, you just couldn't do that. And I would come to the meeting, and there would be four men there, and I'd say hi to three of them, and I would never say hi to Freddie. I was at work one day, and one of my coworkers came up to me. He said, Bobby, he said, Freddie Wheels is outside. He wants to do this, take care of some business here. And I peeked out the window. I saw him, and I told my coworker, I said, you know what? Tell him to take his fat ass downtown to City Hall to do that. We don't do that here. 
And my coworker walked away. And about three weeks after that, my coworker called me up. He said, Bobby, he said, uh, he said, Freddie died last night. And before I could say anything, he said, the reason I'm telling you this is because he always spoke so highly of you. Now, here he was, a friend of mine, who took a different stand. And to be honest, I can't even tell you what the hell that motion was in that business meeting. This guy was put in my path numerous, numerous times. I chose not to make amends. And the moment that he said he always spoke so highly of you, I felt about yay big. And I've been, been praying for Freddie ever since, you know. I was put in an opportunity, uh, put in a situation to make amends. I chose not to, and I paid the price. You know, the nice step says wherever possible, not whenever, wherever, place, whenever is time. And Freddie was in my place many, many times. I chose not to, and I paid the price for it. So it's two experiences on the ninth step, you know. The tenth step for me is nothing but the practices of four through nine on a regular basis. You know, you can't continue to do something if you've never done it before, you know. And if I'm sitting up, if I'm going to stand up here and tell you I do a tenth step every day, I'd be lying to you. I, I don't. But you know what? Uh, you'll know when I'm not doing a tenth step too because I get goofy. I get goofy and people around me get goofy and everyone pays the price. So, and you know what? And, and I don't like that. You know, in early recovery, you know the old saying, you can't miss what you never had. Well, I never missed peace of mind because I never had it. In fact, if I was around serene people, I would have to stir the pot up to get a goofy because I was comfortable with goofy. I love that. But now that I'm on the beam, or at least have some sort of taste of peace of mind, I like that. And when things get goofy, I get uncomfortable. I don't like that. So I, I do a test up on a regular basis, but not daily. Sometimes I want to coast and stay sober on yesterday's sobriety. And every time I do that, I always pay the price. I never learn. I say, Christ, I figure it'd be different this time. It's not. It gets goofy. I lash out on my coworkers, my family, and everything else. But, you know, I now know what I need to do. And, you know, I just know when I do it, I benefit, and also the people around me benefit. The 11th step through prayer and meditation to improve my conscious contact with God. I have a conscious contact with my God. Getting back to the 9th step, uh, I was uh, six years sober when I had a conversation with my father, and I had told him what happened with my mom, you know. And, uh, you know, he hugged me. You know, he, you know, he forgave me. And I thought, wow, you know, that, that was an incredible experience. But as I'm going through the steps, I'm getting some sort of conscious contact with God. And uh, the God is my understanding. And, and it may be different than the God that I was indoctrinated in, but you know what? That's okay. I no longer blame the church. You know, the church wasn't my problem. Just like the Air Force wasn't my problem. The police department wasn't my problem. My mom's mental illness wasn't the problem. Bobby Coyle, I was the problem. And that's what I found out through the steps, you know. I'm not proud of my past. But what the steps have enabled me to do is enable me to change my attitude about the past, you know. And I just realized that my mom was a sick woman, you know. And uh, I was getting in conscious contact with my higher power. And, man, that was an incredible experience. And you know what? Prayer and meditation for me is extremely personal, and I certainly don't want to insult anyone. But what works for me is fantastic. And I guess you just need to find whatever you're comfortable with. And there's thousands of books on both on both topics. So if it's a journey, figure it out. And that's what I've done in early recovery. My first five, six years, I, mean, I was reading books on all types of different things, checking out different types of churches. And uh, I'm finally at a spot today where I'm comfortable. And I know that without question, there definitely is a higher power. And uh, as I understand him, and I don't know if I understand him, but I, I know he certainly understands me. And I guess that's all that counts. The 12th step says having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps. That's the result of doing the steps. And I've had that spiritual awakening. Now, I haven't seen any burning bushes and no lightning bolts or any voices from above. In fact, it's probably been a few years since I've heard any voices at all, and I'm tremendously grateful for that. <laughs> but I've had that change of attitude, and that's what my spiritual awakening is, and that's all it was, a change of attitude. 
we tried to carry this message. That's the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been to thousands of meetings and I've heard some crazy messages and I've got to scratch my head and look up the slogans and make sure I'm in an AA meeting. I talked earlier about just don't drink. That's not the message. That implies willpower. You know? That's the message. And you'll hear people say, well, don't talk about God to the newcomer because you're just going to scare him. Well, if he's lucky, alcohol chases ass right back here because he's got nowhere else to go. And if I'm going to 12-step somebody and not mention the spiritual aspect of the program, then I'm lying to them. I'm claiming credit for something that left in my own devices. I'm a liar, thief, and a cheat. You know, and uh, I, I can't claim credit for this. You know, there definitely is a spiritual part. And, and, and we're encouraged. You need to mention it, you know. But, you know, I know that's not too popular, but that's what I need to do today. It says try to carry the message on. Sometimes I forget where it tries in there. You know, I, I guess I want to, you know, I, I went through my evangelical stage of recovery. I had the fireman's hat on. I want to beat you, point it out in the big book. When I got done, I want to backhand you with it to make sure you got it. <laughs> but I've gone through, you know, I matured over the years, gotten a little more mellow, and I, I realized that I can't claim credit for those getting sober because then I'd better claim credit for, you know, or take the blame for those who are not. And in my personal experience, those who aren't making it fell far outnumber those who are making it. And I know that I don't have the power to get anyone drunk and I don't have the power to get anyone sober. I carry the message and it's all in God's hands, you know. But the most important part of this 12 step is to practice these principles in all of my affairs, you know. I'm only in an AA meeting an hour and a half a day. What about the other 22 and a half hours? What about the time on the job or the time with my family? I mean, I can stand up here and quote the literature and sound like the second coming of Bill. But if I'm flying home today, you know, and I wind up, you know, getting into a fight with the stewardess or driving from the airport to my home and I'm giving you the finger and chasing you five miles, that wouldn't be practicing these principles in all my affairs, you know. <laughs> I don't need to run around and tell people I'm in AA. People know, you know. I tell you, uh, towards the end of my drinking, my neighbor Joe lives right across the street from me. Joe had a bar down the street. It was a toilet of a bar. In fact, if you came in and said, where's the toilet? I'd say, you're standing in it. And towards the end of my drinking, Joe wouldn't let me in the bar no more. He said, Bobby, you can't come in here. And he knew my family, he knew what I did for a living. He said, I don't, I don't care about that. In fact, if you come in my bar, he says, you know, I, I'm going to, you know, eat you. <laughs> I said, okay. So I went to a different bar, you know, it, it didn't matter to me. But I couldn't believe I got flagged from this two little bar. About five years ago, Joe, he tracked my, uh, my father still lives uh, across the street. And uh, Joe called my father up and uh, he wanted to have my phone number. And my dad gave it to him. And I got this phone call and Joe said, uh, Bobby, do you still go to the AA meetings? I said, yeah, Joe, I do. He said, I was wondering if you could help me. He said, my nephew just got out of treatment. His nephew, uh, his parents got killed when he was a kid in an automobile accident, and Joe raised uh, his nephew. And uh, Joe says, I'm wondering if you could take him to a meeting. He was 17 years old. Now, here it was 12 years before. I'm, never, I'm not allowed near his toilet of a bar under the threat of physical harm. And here he is. He's allowing me to take his 17-year-old nephew to a meeting. And, you know... That was a reward of the program, you know. It was the way that I carried myself in the neighborhood. It was not anything else. You know, actions speak louder than words, you know. And Joe saw that. And then he knew that I was doing the right thing. Because in my neighborhood, a news travels quickly. If I wasn't in AA, he would have known about it. He would never track me down. But I guess he inquired, you know, went out on the grapevine, found out that things were going good, and he put the arm out for me, you know. And uh, he allowed me to take his nephew to meetings. And that's a reward of the program, you know. The steps have uh, removed the obsession to drink, and for that I'm grateful. Then I got involved in service, you know, and the 12 traditions, and then concepts. So when you guys read the concepts before the meeting started, I'm telling you, with the exception of being at my area assembly, I don't think I've ever heard the concepts being read in a meeting today uh, uh, before, and I, th I think that was really neat. 
And, you know, the traditions are to the groups, what the steps are to the individuals, you know, and the steps are how it works and the traditions are why it works. And I got involved in the traditions, and I love the traditions, you know, and then I got involved in the concepts, you know. And then in, uh, in 1993, I got elected. I was the alternate delegate for my area, Area 59, and uh, on panel 43, and in my head, ego, I wanted to be the youngest delegate ever to the conference, the General Service Conference, and I was on my way, whatever the hell that was worth. And uh, I got diagnosed with cancer a week later, uh, a month later. And uh, it was a real fluke way, the way I found out. So I went, I went to go get a second opinion, and the second opinion got confirmed. I got lung cancer. I never smoked a cigarette in my life. Smoked a little reefer just for a short time, but <laughs> never smoked a cigarette in my life. And I wound up with lung cancer. And I couldn't believe this. I said, damn. So I start going through, you know, I chemo and radiation to shrink the tumor. And then I had to finally have surgery. I had the lower left lobe of my lung removed. And I had to give up my position as the alternate delegate. And I didn't want to do that. Because ego, I want to be the youngest delegate to the conference. But I knew that I didn't have the strength to serve. And I had to give it up. Because my area would have been better served with somebody else in that position. And, you know, uh, I got really sick, you know, and after the surgery, I was laid up in the hospital for a bit, uh, and then and I was in a, at home for a couple of weeks, and I couldn't even make meetings, and I was very active in my area. And you know what? People started coming to my house. I mean, you're looking at a liar, thief, and a cheat. I took from everyone. The only thing I gave was heartache and misery, and people started coming to my house, even people I really didn't know that well. I just knew it was like through service. And they started coming to my house and carrying the message of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was really impressed by that, you know. And, uh, you know, I'm a firm believer of my doctors did a pretty good job, but the prayers in AA helped a lot. Now, I don't want you to think I handled this well because I didn't. I was on the pity pot. I said, damn, I'm sober for a bit. I'm doing the right thing. Like, how dare this happen to me? And my sponsor at the time, and he would die shortly right afterwards, suddenly. He said, Bobby, so what the hell are you going to do? He said, you're going to be on the pity pot. You're going to take some action, you know. And I wound up getting in remission, and then I wound up getting sick again. And, you know, I said, man, I said, you know, I thought I had a lot of excuses to go out and get loaded, but I really didn't have a reason to go out and get loaded. You know, I had an opportunity to square my life away. I'll tell you about this, though. Getting, like, news like this, it encourages you to finish up that ninth step. <laughs> At least it did for me because I was afraid, like, the scales are still like this. But, uh, you know, and that's what I did. And I was one of those guys that, so well, I was out there, you know, and I really wasn't out there for years. I mean, I got sober young, and I said, you know, I was out there, I did all this damage, I could never possibly make amends to everyone. And right there I'm making, you know, I'm setting up some sort of excuses for not doing the ninth step. But getting this work, you know what, man, I, I start tracking people down. I said, I want to make sure things were all right. And uh, it, it was just a rough time, you know. And uh, I got through it, you know. I, I'm now in remission, uh, you know, knock on wood. Uh, it's been uh, 14, 15 months since I had any type of treatment, and uh, I'm cancer-free. You know, and again, the doctors did a pretty good job, but I'm a firm believer the prayers in AA. About seven years ago, I'm in a, Mex in a, a meeting in Mexico, Spanish-speaking meeting. I'm the only English-speaking person in the room. I thought I could speak Spanish. Those poor people are probably still figuring out what the hell I said. <laughs> so I switched over to English, and, and they still don't know what the hell I said. And after the meeting, you know, they came up and they hugged me, and I could tell who the old-timer was by the serenity in their face, and I could tell who the new guy was by their pain in their face. And they understood language of the heart, you know. I don't want you to think I'm the poster boy of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I'm not. I tell people, come live with me for a week. See what type of guide I am. And, you know, I, I know I'm a bit goofy still. But you know what? I know I'm not intentionally harming people, you know. 
So I, so I may be a little obsessive, compulsive, and I'm anal, and I'm all those other things. But I'm not intentionally harming people. I know I'm not doing that today. I try to do the right thing. And for those days I fall short, you know what? I don't beat myself up. It's a learning experience. I move on. You know? I can't stay sober on yesterday's sobriety. I remember I was at my 10th anniversary, and I remember making a remark, well, I only need a couple meetings a week. And my sponsor came up to me afterwards. He said, you don't get it, you selfish SOB, do you? He says, you're no longer here for yourself. You're here to carry the message to the newcomer. And, you know, I got a lot going on in my life today, and I make five meetings a week. And I make five meetings a week because my job is to carry the message. That's what the preamble says. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to carry the message of the alcoholic who still suffers. If I'm just staying sober and not carrying the message, that's half measures, and half measures avail us nothing. And I make regular attendance of meetings because that's where the newcomer is, because the newcomer doesn't know that I live at 929 Federal Street. That's where I find the newcomers at the meetings. And when I go to meetings and guys I sponsor, they want to come up and talk to me, I don't talk to them at meetings. I say, you guys got my phone number. You can call me anytime. You don't call me and uh, here all of a sudden you see me in a waiting. You want to talk to me? Talk to that new guy. That's why I'm at meetings, to carry the message to the new guys, you know. And uh, 12-step work takes a lot of different forms. I remember one day my sponsor, he said, Bob, I'm going to take you up to Graterford, which is a state correctional facility in Pennsylvania, right outside Philadelphia. I said, no, you're not. He said, yes, I am. I said, no, you're not. And, you know, you get into arguments with your sponsor. You can never win. And I went. But I, was, I didn't want to go because, you know, what I did for a living. And I said, well, you know, I'm going to go up there. And, but my, my sponsor at the time was a uh, parole officer for 30 years, so he figured if he was going up there, I shouldn't have any problem, you know. And uh, I, was, I went up there, and, but I thought I would have to embellish my story. I thought I would have to use a lot of profanity. And it wasn't like that at all. And Pennsylvania is one of the few states that have life without parole, and life means life, and the only way that you're leaving is feet first. And these guys are in the hands of the receivers, and they're going to any length to stay sober. And I'd be, I go to these meetings, and you know what? There's no profanity, and none of these guys are taking war stories that take my heart. No one, you know, I didn't tell them what I did for a living. You know, that wasn't important. They just wanted a message of hope, according to my sponsor. And that's what I tried to give them. You know what? I was there a couple years, and I finally told one of the guys what I did. And he started laughing. He said, you know what? I knew you were a cop. <laughs> but it didn't matter. It didn't matter. And I'm going to tell you about this meeting. It's the most spiritual meeting I've ever been to. Because when guys need to get up and get coffee, they do so quietly. And again, there was no profanity, and there's none of these war stories. Unfortunately, and I'm embarrassed, but if you come to my home group, sometimes people come in 15 minutes late. They're shaking everyone's hand like they're running for mayor. They're getting coffee. They're making all this noise. And, and, and it drives me nuts. I'm sitting there, and they can tell that I'm steaming. But, you know... I can't, you've got to let it go, right? But I get a hold of them afterwards and say, how dare you do that? You're disruptive. You can't be doing that. But, you know, the, the, the lifers group at Graterford is the most spiritual meeting I've ever been to. Now, I know prisons aren't for everyone, but 12-step work takes a lot of different forms, you know? There's guys who make great coffee. There's people who speak. There's people who are, have a lot of free time, and they can be involved in service at the district, at the area level. There's some people who are real good organizers and can put these conferences on. There's some real good people who are good at figures and they go with checkbooks. And there's probably some of us who should never be allowed near a checkbook. But you know what? What the deal is, you need to find out what your gift is. And I'm a firm believer everyone in this room has a gift. You just need to be able to find out what it is. One of my favorite sayings in, in, uh, in the program, in the big book, it says we absolutely insist on enjoying life. And I was reading uh, the history of this conference and where it started. And really, there is a mistake, but you'll figure it out. But you guys, uh, I understand you try to get a young people's conference. I was very involved in young people's, you know, and uh, I loved young people's. And there's some things that today kind of bother me, but that's not what young people's started. The very first young people's is still in existence. It started in 1946, and it started in Philadelphia. 
and their name was the 35 and under group. And once you became 36, you were allowed to go to a business meeting, but you couldn't vote. But the reason they started is because they weren't accepted by mainstream AA at the time. And in 1957, they started ICIPA. And the very first ICIPA was held in Niagara Falls in 1957. And they picked Niagara Falls because that was a joint venture between the Philadelphia and the Toronto young people. And I interviewed about 14 men who were at the very first conference. You know, I, I have a love for the history, and I think the history is important. You know, and I want to find out why these guys started Young People's because the past few years there was something in Young People's that bothered me. And I thought we needed to get back to the basics. And Young People's was never meant to be a special interest group. You know what? These guys want to be part of mainstream AA. And the very first Saturday night banquet speaker at Niagara Falls eventually became our area delegate. And out of that group of people that I uh, interviewed, three of them became our area uh, delegate and two of them became the president of our intergroup association. They just wanted to be part of mainstream AA. And Bill Wilson was always a big supporter of young people's, you know. And uh, we have a saying, young as anyone with room to grow. But I, I grew up, I, you know, I went to a lot of young people's conferences and I love the enthusiasm. And, you know, but there's some things that, you know, I'm not that comfortable with, but I, I don't want to be a hypocrite and bash them. But young people's play a very big part of my recovery. And I guess that's the genesis of this convention. You, know, you guys got a resentment to get the conference, and Scott got a resentment and started a conference. And whatever reason, it worked. You know, but uh, you know, it's you know, there's work, there's action. You know, people talk about the rewards of recovery, and it's just like the real world. You don't get the rewards unless you do the work. Like if you get a job, you're not employee of the month or you get the yearly bonuses unless you produce. You go to school, you don't make the dean's list unless you produce. You play sports, you don't get selected for the all-star team unless you produce. The same thing in Alcoholics Anonymous. You don't get the rewards unless you produce. It's a program of action. It's just not showing up. You know, people say just show up and, you know, the program will get a hold of you. That's a lie. It's a program of action. It has nothing to do with time. And for those who are new, I don't want to think recovery is the big wheel and one day it lands on you and it's your turn to go out. Because that's nonsense too. I hear people say, yeah, I did the 12 steps and I still got loaded. That's a lie. Because nowhere in the 12 steps does it say go out and buy a fifth. You know, in fact, there's a guarantee in the big book that prevents you. It says when, when all else fails, rigorous work with another alcoholic will prevent you from picking up the drink. You know, the, you know, it, it's just, you know, there's a lot of misinformation out there. And, and I strongly encourage you, get yourself a big book. Get yourself a sponsor who has experienced the steps. If your sponsor hasn't done the steps, he ain't got no business sponsoring you. You know, uh, get yourself a home group. Become involved in service. It's a wonderful way of life, but there's a lot of fun to be had too, though. I don't want you to think that you need to put the hair shirt and beat yourself, and this is what you need to do and make AA meetings for the rest of your life. I'm going to close with this. I say this for the end because I'm going to completely lose you. I'm a lifelong mummer. Yeah. And, well, there's a couple guys here from the East Coast who know what it is, but most of you people say, what the hell is a mummer? Uh, a mummer is, uh, it's, first of all, it comes from mummus. Mummus was a Greek god of ridicule. And the Mummers Parade is the longest, oldest, continuous parade in the country. It's in Philadelphia. It's on New Year's Day and started around 1720s. And they originally, they used to shoot guns up in the air and they became the New Year's shooters. But the, uh, we're Mummers. And what Mummers are, we're grown men, we put makeup, we wear sequins and feathers, and we dance in the middle of the street. Now I've done a fifth step, so I can tell you all this stuff. But it, it's great. But picture the Mardi Gras. You know the Mardi Gras with all the colorful floats and the ostrich plumes? Well, the same thing in Philadelphia. But the thing is, in Philadelphia, our parade goes for about 13, 14 hours. Mardi Gras is a period of three days, but it's not that long, you know, five, six hours. It's the longest continuous parade in the uh, country. At one time, it was on the Travel Channel, so maybe some of you guys caught a glimpse of it. Whatever. There's a lot of drinking to do with the mummers. It's big. It's uh, alcohol flows, you know. When I got sober, I stopped marching in the parade. 
I'm at a meeting 10 years ago. I'm telling my story, midnight meeting, and I'm telling my story. I'm a lifelong mummer. And a kid came up to me afterwards. He said, would you be interested in watching the parade this year? I said, you're out of your mind. People, places, and things. I got no business being there. He says, we got a group called the 12 Steppers. Everyone's in the program. I said, wow, like sober mummers. Like, that's definitely, that's an oxymoron. <laughs> sober mummers. So for the last nine years, the 12 Steppers, we as a brigade have gone up the street. This past year, I marched in my 32nd Mummers Parade. This past year was the first time ever I came in first place. Now, when we get done marching, we finish up at City Hall, we do a head count to make sure no one got pulled in a crowd because it's real insane. <laughs> but it just goes to show you, whatever you did drunk, you can do stone cold sober, be better at it, have more fun, and most of all, remember it. You know? <laughs> it's a blast. So if you're new, please keep coming back. It's a wonderful way of life, you know. We absolutely insist on enjoying life, you know. But it's a program of action, too, you know. I started off by saying I always want to be a part of, to the point where I lied, I, I compromised my principles and values, I sold everything. I want to be a part of. That, that need to be a part of outweighed everything else. I now feel a part of here in Alcoholics Anonymous, and you people love me warts and all, and uh, I'll be forever in your debt. I know that my family thanks you, and I certainly thank you for the privilege of participating in the AA meeting. That's all I got. Thanks.